The demand for energy is accelerating like never before. New sources are emerging and established ones are evolving. Collectively, all sources will provide the fuel needed to support future global demand. Here on the Energy Scale-Ups podcast, we explore and learn about the people and companies solving today's problems to produce tomorrow's energy needs. Here is your host, Jose Solis. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Halliburton Labs. Halliburton Labs works with early stage companies to help accelerate their growth by providing access to operational expertise, mentorship, as well as financing opportunities as companies prepare to scale. Enter to win their weekly giveaway at HalliburtonLabs.com forward slash giveaway. Hey there, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of the Energy Scallops podcast. I'm your host, Jose Solis, and today I am joined by Mr. Steve Lewis. Steve is the managing director at Eternal Energy and is an executive advisor. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thanks for having me, Jose. Steve, if you wouldn't mind, please give the listeners a little bit of your background and bio. Great. Well, Eternal Energy is a boutique business advisory firm, and we specialize in accelerating the time to market for small to medium-sized enterprises. And the way we do that is through having hands-on fractional executives come into the organizations and help as needed. That way, those types of companies don't need to employ full-time people. It's really based on the 80-20 principle and being able to provide very productive time and provide an 80% return in only that 20% time is very attractive to clients. So we're based in here in Houston, Houston, Texas, and the energy capital of the world and in Dubai. So we have a very wide reach and help companies really stretch their sales teams and their businesses into new geographies in which they may not have had the opportunity to at that stage of their existence. So that's what Eternal Energy does. We have advisors who are CEOs, CFOs, lawyers, HR professionals. I'm kind of the de facto business development guy and technology guy because my background is oil and gas and engineering. And I was very fortunate to start in an organization that was very entrepreneur. It was called Coflexip Stena, and they were got acquired by tech, what's now Technip FMC. And so we did a lot of kind of cutting edge engineering work in the Gulf of Mexico that was we were just getting into ultra deep water, like that five, 6,000 foot water depths here in the Gulf of Mexico in that early 2000s time period. So we really accelerated a lot of learning and that kind of put me on this path of how to manage big teams and big projects. And yeah, I'm sure we'll get into it through this conversation. For sure. About kind of my unique career path that I've been through the last 20 plus years. So, I mean, yeah, we're talking about 20 years of experience in energy. And I'm just curious, you know, just thinking back all the way to the beginning, why did you choose to pursue a career in energy in the first place? What was it about energy that made you want to get into the field and get in energy? This started actually back in the 80s. My father was in engineering and in energy. And as you may remember, a lot of your listeners probably do, is in the early 80s, it was the golden era in the oil industry here in Houston. People came here because of the jobs. And I think our population in Texas grew about by over 27% in the decade. Right. But then the bottom dropped out and you know OPEC flooded the market, sending oil prices down to like $10 a barrel, inflation adjusted. And that was brutal. A lot of people lost their jobs. And you know we see that kind of thing happen again the last 
several years. But when that happened in the 80s, a lot of companies weren't hiring for engineers in the energy sector, particularly petroleum engineering. So when I graduated from UT Austin in a civil engineering degree, and I started in energy, there was this big gap between, there was a lot of graduates like myself. And then there was, because there was no hiring for that last about 20 years, then there was only people in their you know, 40s who were upper management. So what that meant for the guys like us were that we had to really accelerate our learning, take on a lot of responsibility and authority that otherwise we probably shouldn't have. But in doing so, it really made a lot of good leaders. And there's a lot of guys that I came up with that are now leading companies in the energy sector and even beyond. I have some really good engineers that are in the space program, for instance. So that's really cutting edge. That's interesting. You know, you mentioned that you got an opportunity to work for a company that allowed you to be entrepreneurial. And so I'm, I'm assuming, but you tell me, you know, what was it that ultimately made you decide to go into business for yourself? Yeah, this is an interesting story. So like I said, we were doing things, we we're kind of writing the codes as we went along in how to install and operate in ultra deep water. And that was a really fun dynamic time. We learned a lot and did some really interesting projects. I had an opportunity to take on a management role at another company. And I'd only been out of school about five years. So I wasn't sure if I wanted to take it. I remember driving in the car on the way to work and I heard a quote by Harry Truman. And he said that your successes will be infinite if you don't waste time worrying who gets credit for it. That's kind of counterintuitive because we're kind of taught, particularly in corporate America, you want to take credit for everything you do and you want to avoid any kind of blame. But something resonated with me. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to take this manager role. It was an opportunity to start a department from scratch. I was employee number one and really test that theory and you know, give credit to my team and take on the criticism when we don't deliver. And did that for a couple of years. And I started looking back and realizing that was really the secret of my success because we established this level of trust within the team. You're being deployed all over the world doing really complex projects and doing them in such a way where we could do things you know, better, faster, safer, cheaper, cleaner. And through that, I started getting on more responsibilities and had been through a couple of mergers and acquisitions, saw how difficult it is to integrate the teams. You know, you've heard that most mergers and acquisitions like, don't end up in greater shareholder value over time. And a couple of things happened when I was a director of engineering. And we had about 150 engineers and designers on the team. And because we're in such rapid growth, we brought on a lot of people that not necessarily fit the mold of what a sub-C engineer should be. The PhDs and the, the 4.0s, you know, they were getting going to the operators in a lot of cases. But that wasn't my criteria for finding a really good engineer. It was finding those people that could communicate really complex information in a simple way, who liked working in a collaborative environment and who had a really strong work ethic. Those were really some of the main criteria that we used. So we built up this really big team, really high performing. One thing I noticed is that 
they had all these great ideas, but it was difficult for them to make sure that they were solving a problem that existed and how to convey that to all the stakeholders, whether it was internally, which we took on a lot of their initiatives. And that was another reason why we were really successful, but also externally to either the clients or the other vendors and our partners. And that kind of stuck with me for a while, particularly when I went into, I went into business development. And I also saw that there was a need to do business development a little bit differently than how it had been done before. So relationships are still really important. In fact, they're probably more important now than ever before. But how we create those relationships has evolved over time. Because a lot of times you don't need engineers to explain our designs and our products and services. You can go online now and find that kind of information. Now it's really important to ask the clients what their challenges are and then derive a solution together. And that's what builds the trust, not the other way around where you go to the golfing, fishing, those types of things. Although those are great, but we choose to solve client problems first and that establishes the trust. And when I realized that there was this new way of doing things, that's when I said, you know what? I think I can do this better. And I left corporate in 2018 and have been doing this ever since. Is there anybody that you met along you know, your career or somebody that you follow that has really inspired you to move in this direction with your career and, and to become an entrepreneur? There's a lot of people. I mean, I just one or two of them. One of my mentors was actually my boss for a about five, six years. And this was when we were in a company was is rapid growth mode. And he would always talk about in terms of building a company with people, processes, and tools. And the order matters. You have to do it in that order. And I never really paid much attention to that initially until I realized I was always going back to those three things and to do it in that right order. So we essentially, in any kind of organization, you got to get the right people on the bus. You know, Jim Collins of Good to Great fame talks about that. Get the good guys on the bus, they'll figure out where to sit. And then the next step is really identify what the goals are and, and how to go from point A to point B. That's the process. And then you give them the tools. And so when you have that framework in place, you can really attack any kind of problem and when you start seeing things from that angle, then you say, well, I'm going to go out and do this on my own. There's a need there that's not being met, and I want to fill that, fill that gap. So when I went into consulting, and this is an interesting story I think you'll appreciate given your line of work, is I realized pretty quickly that digital marketing was the way to scale a business. And what had happened was I was getting all these cold calls from these marketing agencies and these guys telling me that they're going to increase my SEO score, my lead generation. And I was like, I had no idea what they were talking about. And I went to business school. <laughs> and I was fortunate to have a mutual friend named Tom Augenthaler. He's known around town as the influence marketer. And I had never even heard that term before either. <laughs> and I said, Tom, I don't want you to do anything for me, but I want you to teach me what is to this digital marketing? Because I never really played in that, that space before. 
And so we worked through Twitter and LinkedIn and videos and websites. And I settled on LinkedIn as my channel to help establish myself as someone that has value in this area of technology and energy and and growing businesses. And I made a concerted effort to spend time on this, trying to just add value to the conversations that happen along in LinkedIn. In doing so, we've amassed a pretty big following to where companies come to us asking for help. So I've never really made a cold call before. And because of that, in the last three and a half years, we've analyzed about over 140 companies. And so then you start seeing where these problems exist and what the great ideas are and how to best implement them because they all have kind of the same obstacles to commercialization. And so that has accelerated my learning, not just accelerated the growth of these companies. So it's been a real win-win. So you talked a little bit about, you know, some of the challenges that companies hire you to help them with. In addition to the one that you've already mentioned, what are probably the most common three that are the issues that they're having? Yeah, in, in general, it's all companies need need cash. That's the lifeblood of any organization. Either you do that by raising capital or you get customers. I focus on the customer side. And again, it's find that correct product market fit. And then it's an effective sales and marketing implementation. There's a really good book called Strategic Sales. It's called the Miller-Hyman Method, these two guys. They identified it's not just one buyer that you're going after. A lot of us on the technical side, we want to speak in terms of specifications and engineers talking to engineers. And although that's a really important part of the equation, and if you don't meet their qualifications, you're not moving forward in a sale. But at the same time, there's more to it than they can't just write you the check. So understand that there's also a couple other buyers. There's the end user who wants a reliable solution. And there is the financial buyer, the purstering holder, if you will. Usually the project manager or the CFO. It needs to make economic sense. And so you're speaking about your product or service in a few different ways to a few different people. There's actually one more buyer that often gets overlooked. I'm guilty of this as well. And that's really finding the internal champion in the company that can understand what you do and speak on your behalf to their team because you may get that one hour meeting to show your demo and it may go great. But who's speaking on your behalf those other 39 hours of the week to really penetrate into the organization? That person is extremely important. And it's hard to find that person. And it takes time to to develop that trust. The third thing, once you have the right product market fit and the sales implementation down, is really that effective execution so that you get repeat customers. And so I did a lot of project management in the past. You know, they'll tell you following a project management process having a change management procedure, those things, having constant communication with the client, that will ensure a successful pilot or first implementation so that you get that second, third, and fourth ones. And then you have that social proof that you can then use to get more clients. So it's kind of that first domino that falls and and sets everything off in motion. Yeah, I think a lot of times people get hung up on trying to get new clients when they don't realize that there's so much value that they can get from, you know, 
building those relationships and furthering their opportunities within their current base of business. And especially in the oil and gas industry, when you have, you know, so many business units that may exist within one operator, right? So if you're trying to get, let's say, for instance, if you're trying to work with Exxon, Shell, and Chevron, yeah, that's great. But if you can build a book of business with Chevron in different areas of their business, not just in like one basin, they don't all talk to each other and they act like different customers altogether. But like you said, you can use that proof of concept within their own organizations. Probably already easier, you know, their buying process, you know, maybe somebody on the contract side or you already have an MSA. You don't have to go through that process again. It makes life a lot easier. Exactly. You're really just making these connections. And especially in some of these big siloed organizations, they've had a lot of retrenchment in the last couple of years. A lot of people moving around. They really rely on guys like us to say, hey, you know, we're doing this over here. Maybe you might get some value looking into it over at your side. You're providing a service on top of not just the commodity that you might be selling or you know the widget you're selling. So I want to kind of come back to a little bit because I know you've talked to a lot of companies. You've worked with a lot of companies during your career as an entrepreneur. What have been some of the most, like a few of the common denominators that you've seen in companies that have gone on to flourish? Mm-hmm. There are so many obstacles and a CEO of a, a growing company is just pulled in so many different directions. So it's important for them to have a process and a proven process. And I tell them, if you do the right things, over time, things will work out. And so one of the things that we help companies with is these are all common sense, but you'd be amazed how they, a lot of times they're not followed because you know everything is urgent and you got to just juggle so many balls in the air. But Number one, it's just doing an assessment of both internally and externally that of what you do best, what the market's like, who is on your team, and being able to just list that out. I bet if you ask 10 CEOs what they do, what their mission is, I bet you a lot of them will spend five minutes trying to explain it. And that means that they haven't really assessed what they do very well yet. So would you say one of the common denominators is a focus CEO? Absolutely. Absolutely. And being able to communicate what that focus is. You know, a lot of the companies that that are successful, they have good communication throughout their organization. So everyone's aligned internally. Everyone has a consistent message. And when it comes to getting sales, what they'll start with is they'll put a pitch deck together. and those companies that can get to their solution really quick in that pitch is far more successful. Now, realize that the attention span of a typical customer across any kind of organization is literally like one to two minutes. In fact, if that, <laughs> yeah, some psychologists will tell you that within like five seconds, make a decision whether they're going to buy from you or not and whether they're aware or not. So those clients, those companies that can get to their solution really quick and kind of create that sense of urgency and interest are usually quite successful. And in that pitch, not waiting to the very end to ask for questions, the best companies and presenters take their audience on an epic journey through their narrative. And so they're creating engagement and creating an environment interaction. Really, we do that by asking a lot of questions to the client. Because if you're 
talking all the time, you may not be hearing what your clients are really asking for. And that's a total normal thing that a lot of us do, and especially in the engineering community, we're paid to know things. And one of the ways people buy from us is through establishing our authority as an expert in that field. So we have PhDs, we have certifications and professional engineers, and that's important, but it shouldn't also usurp all these other ways in which clients want to work with us. So asking questions is usually a good sign that a company is going to be successful because they've gone through those types of conversations. And it's things like asking, you know, how satisfied are you with your business? What challenges are you currently facing? What activities are you focused on now and how much progress have you made with those? You know, what's important to you? What success look like? Those kinds of things, you'll start to glean a lot of information and then you can then focus your offering on exactly what their needs are. That's great. One more question before we wrap up here. And this is something that I always try and get people to tell me on the podcast because obviously having so many things go on in your life, all the things that you've been doing in your career, I'm always curious to find out what skills or habits have you developed that have helped you the most throughout your career? Man, that's a great question, Jose. A lot of times I think that I'm pretty hard on myself, so I'm my harshest critic. And that's not necessarily a good trait to have, but you can spin it in a way that says, you know, if I know that if I'm working my hardest, then others will then be a little bit less demanding on me or have a little lower expectations. If you set a really high bar for yourself. So I've always been really hardworking. I've always really cared about the job that I do. I care about helping others. And that's ultimately what drove me to do this business was to, I tell people it's to help good people with good ideas be great. And the kind of satisfaction I get from doing that is really motivating. So yeah, I would say, you know, caring about people and putting them first has allowed me to be successful in this industry. Because like I said before, if you don't worry about who gets credit for things, a lot of times people will work harder for you and they'll set that high bar. So that's the thing that kind of drives me the most. And certainly there's a lot of other things that have happened in my life that have put me in this position. But whatever it is for other people, you know, I hope they're able to find that and start pursuing their passions. Because at the end of the day, that's what's going to drive you to further and further success is really loving what you do. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, and it sounds like just building that empathetic muscle, right? Having empathy for people and then that selflessness and wanting to, you know, just basically go out and do great work and help other people and not really get worried about who gets the accolades, but knowing that you're putting out like a good product or a good service, right? Yeah, absolutely. So one thing I want to do before we finish up here is I want to remind our listeners to enter our weekly giveaway, which is a really cool backpack from Halliburton Labs. I'd also like to ask the listeners to rate, review, and connect with any feedback that you may have. Steve, before we go, I want to give you an opportunity to tell the listeners how they can find out more about you, connect with you, learn about your company, and some events you may have coming up soon. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Please, I invite everybody to link in with me on LinkedIn. Steve G. Lewis is my profile name. Or go to our website, which is www.eternal-nrg.com. And one of the things that we're most excited about coming up 
just in a couple of weeks or sooner, on the 22nd of February, is an event we're having with the SPE, Gulf Coast Sections, putting on. It's the Innovate Series. So SPE, for those who aren't familiar, their mission is to meet the world's energy needs, but in a safe and environmentally friendly and sustainable manner. And innovations are a big way of doing that. So we bring in entrepreneurs and innovators from all over to talk about their experience. And we'll be interviewing, sitting down with Neil Murthy, who's CEO of Talent. Really fantastic story. I think you guys are going to really love hearing from him. We'll be also inviting startups to come up and give their one-minute elevator pitch and for a chance to win a guest slot on your show. Right, Jose? That's right. That's right. It's going to be a great event. I'll be there emceeing the event. It's going to be a lot of fun. I can't wait to hear all the pitches and get to hear Neil speak and you know get to field a lot of great questions from the audience. I'm really looking forward to it. Well, with that being said, we are going to sign off now. Thank you so much for listening. Steve, thank you so much for spending some time with me today. It was great talking with you. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Jose. Take care. Join us again next week for another episode of the Energy Scale-Ups podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGDN.com.